Hi, psychology nerds, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How's it going, G? It is going really great. This week that we are recording, it is Psych Week at UW-Green Bay, and so uh, today, we are celebrating research. Uh, tomorrow, we are celebrating teaching. And one of our uh, longest teaching members of our faculty, Eileen Cupid, she's retiring. And so we're celebrating her tomorrow. And then we're doing uh, a celebration of service on Thursday. So it's been a great week so far. That's really, really, really great. And we're hoping that we have Dr. Cupid on an episode coming up soon. So she has been on episodes in the past talking about Camp Lloyd, but she's going to talk about it again. And she's doing a no reservations talk uh, at the end of the month, which is going to be yes. really, really great. Um, and we'll drop that information in the, in the show notes so people can check it out. Very, very cool. Awesome. That's good. So I am so excited to do this episode today because um, in my office right now, uh, we have four amazing students. Uh, these are uh, students, our undergraduate students that we are so proud of. They've been working super hard uh, all year long on some fabulous, intriguing research. And so they are, will be presenting this research at the Midwestern Psychological Association next week in Chicago. And so we are excited to get a preview, a sneak peek of the exciting research that they're going to be sharing uh, at the conference next week. So should I start us off by introducing our first awesome student guest? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Well, up first is Haley Olson, and Haley is a psych major, and she will be graduating in fall um, of this year. And so she's going to tell us a little bit about uh, her research with one of our colleagues, Jason Cowell. Uh, you might remember him, listeners, as a uh, uh, one of my, I think it was Kelsey's favorite episode, actually, when Kelsey was our, was our intern. So um, shout out to Jason. Uh, he, he is a psych and stuff all-star. He's been on episodes about autism and schizophrenia and sleep and Phineas Gage and a whole bunch of other episodes. He's been on the show more often than I am, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. So um why don't we uh, just go right into it? And Ryan, do you have a question for Haley? Yeah. So, okay. So if I am right, the name of your project is Early Life Stress Alters the Neural Dynamics of Empathic Processing. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Good. Nailed it. Um, all right. So what, what got you interested in that, uh, in that project in the first place? Uh, well, there's a lot of studies showing that there is a social and environmental factor for people that experience early life stress and different maltreatments that have been shown. We just don't know why. And on a more personal level, I work with children, especially those that are um, considered at risk is the thing. So if they have um, maltreatment experiences or if they're in poverty and things like that. And so I work really closely with these kids. So it was really important to me to figure out um, things like that, that helped them in their lives. Excellent. And 
So, okay, wasn't sure if Georgina had something to say there, but so give me a sense of sort of what you what what you did with this project and what you found. Uh, yeah, so we took students from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay and we had them before they came in, we had them fill out a study and we looked at questions from the ACE scale that asked them if before the age of 18, if they experienced any verbal abuse in their lives. And then we had them come in and we put EEG caps on them and we had them go through 80 trials where they looked at um, pain versus no pain stimuli. So pictures of hands and feet in painful situations or not painful situations. Yeah, really fun. And then we asked them either uh, how much pain they thought the person was in or how they felt, how sorry they felt for the person. And then I took that data and combined it versus those who said yes to having verbal maltreatment before the age of 18 to those who said no. And I actually found that those who said yes, looking at their late positive potentials had double the neural effort than those who said no. So when you say double the neuro effort, can you help us um, understand what that might mean in like a, a daily life kind of thing? Like what, do, how does that translate into a, a person's everyday life? Yeah. So um, one of the big things about the study is we actually don't know why we just know that it does, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, but one thing it does say is that their brains, when they think about it, they take um, double the neural effort in the neural uh, electrodes in their brains in the midline of their brain. It just took double than those who did. So our biggest thing next for studying is uh, why it does that and what that really means is our next big step. Can you give me a sense for what it what a foot in a painful situation looks like? <laughs> I need to know what this picture is real quick. Oh, well, there's there's 80 trials of them. So it's uh, one's a foot under a rock, a hand in a toaster, you know, basic okay. life scenarios that you wow. see all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what I was wondering. I, I needed to know if it was like someone in the act of like stubbing a toe or something like that. How yeah, it really makes me think of the guy that was like posing for these pictures is his fingers like in a windowsill. It's all for science, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> just one guy probably honestly a graduate student at some point probably wasn't, wasn't even compensated for the labor it really sad go ahead G I love that um so uh so our, our listeners really like to to know like what does this mean for me like what does it mean for me as a like a a regular person out there in the world and so um what does this mean and, and how can we maybe help um, those who have experienced some traumatic event in their young lives? What does it mean for us and what can we do to help? Yeah, um, I think it definitely, the big of why it does that still a huge unknown for us. We just know that it takes double the time. So it could mean that they're more empathetic, which is why there's that double uh, the neural processing on that. It could just also mean that because of their early life maltreatment that it takes double the time to get to that empathetic level that people who haven't experienced that has, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't get to the same level. So I think that's a big thing to work, think about. In some ways it feels like this is yet another indicator of the, the problems of uh, child stress, right? And so another way in which we know, I mean, we, we have lots of reasons to know that that 
uh, stress in childhood is bad and has a negative impact or potentially has a negative impact on development, this is yet another indicator potentially. Mm -hmm, yeah. How are you feeling about um, MPA? It's coming up, what, in a week and a half? Uh, yes, we leave on Wednesday. I'm super excited. It's my first year going. Excellent. Well, this is great. I don't know, G, if you have any final questions or if we're ready. Nope, I, I think we are, we're ready. So we're going to thank you so much, Haley. Uh, so our second awesome undergraduate who uh, is headed to MPA next week is Karsten Cohen. And Karsten will be graduating in May of 2024, which sounds so far away, but it is not. <laughs> so far away. And so it will happen very, very quickly. So welcome, Karsten. Do you have a, um, an opening question for Karsten, Ryan? Well, I think my first question is, Karsten, have I been pronouncing your last name wrong? Because I no, think, I, I, no, I think I've been calling you Cowan. It is Cowan, yeah. Okay. That is a Well, I mean, you could pronounce my first name a million ways too. I hear everything, Kirsten, Carson, all of them. All right. Well, welcome. And I guess, so I, my actual first question, uh, Carson, is um, similar to what we, what we asked before. Maybe just tell us a little bit about the research, what you did, what you found, that sort of thing. Yeah, so my research is very similar to Haley's. Um, we use the same stimuli with the hands and feet and pain. Um, but I, she focused on the maltreatment. I focused on anxiety. So we wanted to look at if those that are higher in anxiety, if it changes their neural processing of empathy. And what did you find? We found um, that those that are higher in anxiety, it takes more effort or more resources into being empathetic. Um, our data was super close to significant. Our p-value was 0 0.057. So I think just getting more participants in the lab will show a significance in the data. So what is something that's really challenging about doing the research that you and Haley and, and Jason Cowell are doing uh, in the lab? What's something that's really challenging that you had to overcome in order to get this terrific data? Well, I'd say um, with COVID and everything, it's really hard to get in-person participants, which is what you need for EEG. So it's not just an online survey where you get to... Um, just fill out a questionnaire and go from there. This is actual, you have to be in the lab, be in person. So I think that was probably our biggest struggle. Yes, and you can't be six feet away when you have to put a cap on someone's head. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure you have to be pretty close up for that. Yep, exactly. So what got you interested in this study in the first place? Um, well, I think anxiety, well, I know anxiety is very prevalent, especially in the United States. And um, a lot of people that I know, myself included, deal with anxiety. And so I thought that just finding the link between anxiety and empathy would be super beneficial. So when you, when I, you were, you were saying about like during the pandemic, I feel like anxiety definitely maybe is more prevalent or maybe we just hear or talk more about it. Um, and it's the, the amount of effort that it takes to be empathetic. Do you think that that will impact the way that we interact with each other moving forward since there seems to be a, an increase in anxiety? 
Definitely. I think with COVID in general, it, as much as it impacted anxiety, it also impacted empathy since we really weren't in person, we weren't seeing people around. Um, and so with that, I think like this data is going to be super beneficial for, especially post COVID eventually interacting with people again, seeing how your empathy changes in those high stress situations is going to be really cool to look at. Yeah, it does feel like that's a thing we've lost. I mean, you know, we, we've talked a lot in the last year about stress and how that's influencing human interactions in potentially negative ways. But I, I do find myself wondering if there's any data out there on empathy and whether or not we're losing that in the last year as well. Is that data you're familiar with or anything you've talked about as you've been doing this research? Um, not post or not since COVID, but I think it would definitely be worth looking into how it's changed, trying to get that data from before and compare it to during. So is there a, um, a, a take-home message that you would uh, share with our listeners? What's the, what's one take-home thing that you would like them to know? Yeah, well, I think our big thing is the next step, the why this happens. And so going forward, we want to look at is it that people that are higher in anxiety are naturally more empathetic and that's why they're easily showing the empathy or is it that it consciously takes more attention and more resources into becoming empathetic? So I think that's our big take home is the next piece, which is the why. This falls into a category of research I've been really interested in lately, which is sometimes exploring the so-called negative emotions but thinking about them in terms of some potential positives that uh, emerge from them. So there's actually some research out there recent that's just come out on mindfulness and said one of the problems with mindfulness is that people who engage in mindfulness don't actually, um, or meditation, meditative mindfulness, feel less guilt, and then therefore they're less likely to make up for their mistakes. And, and so we've got this emotion that people tend to think of as negative guilt, but realizing that it actually serves a really important process uh, in, in people's lives. And it feels like anxiety might be doing the same thing in this case. Exactly. Especially if it does, if we do find out that people that are higher in anxiety are naturally more empathetic, that's not a bad thing at all. <laughs> right. Right. Um, excellent. Uh, one last thing. How are you feeling about MPA? It's right around the corner. Really excited. I think the downstairs poster session where we got to um, just talk about our poster to people at the mass questions helped a lot. So I'm really excited now. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. This is great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And so next up, our next amazing and awesome undergraduate uh, is Caitlin Partridge. And Caitlin will be graduating in May of 2023, which also sounds like super far away, but it is it is one year from now. What, what? So exciting. So um, do you have a first question for Caitlin, Ryan? I'm going to go with the, the same one I've been asking, which is tell us a little bit about your study, what you did, what you found, that sort of thing. Yeah, so my research is a little bit different than um, Karsten and Haley's because I work with um, animals, so it's preclinical stuff. Um, primarily, I work with mice. Um, and basically, my study served to determine whether marble burying is actually, um, whether the mice actually do what we think they do um, when they bury these marbles. 
Um, basically, it's thought that the marbles cause them anxiety and that's why they bury them. Um, however, what we found is that they don't necessarily interact with the marbles when they're digging. It's rather um, the burying of the marbles is a byproduct of their digging. Um, so we basically took different cage conditions with and without marbles and um, watched them dig and saw how much they dug. And um, basically it, we found that there was no difference between any of the conditions and that you know, the more they dug, the more the marbles were buried, which makes sense as it's a byproduct. And I, I was uh, talking to Caitlin earlier, and so I got the, the long version, which is really great. And so if you're at MPA, check out her poster. Um, but I was like, it's really actually like significant research because um, people who are working with these mice have been measuring anxiety in this way for years, uh, just assuming that they were burying, like physically burying the marbles, but actually they were just digging and the marbles accidentally got buried, but they weren't watching the mice while they were doing it. They would let them alone in the cage for a half an hour. And then they would come back a half an hour later and then count how many marbles were buried. And, but they didn't watch them. So do you all watch them? And is that how you discovered what's going on? Yeah, so basically our setup, um, we set up the cage and then we have like a camera on a tripod sitting above it. And so we record the mice for 30 minutes and then we actually go back, like we put the videos all into a flash drive and then um, a couple of us all score these videos to see how much they've dug. Um, so yeah, we're literally watching them do it. It's not a very, what we would call like high throughput method. So like it takes a lot of time, but it's very thorough. So we know exactly what's going on. Um, and like Georgina said, it was just, they did like one study with the marble burying thing, um, you know, in like the sixties and they were like, yes, this is what they're doing. And there, nobody's questioned it. <laughs> so, so yeah. when you say different conditions, it, am I right that it's, you? are there two conditions? Is there with marbles and without marbles or did you have uh, various options? So there's technically four. We did um, a large cage and then a small cage. So the small cage is about a third of the size of the large cage. It, it's typically what they're housed in. Um, and then we had no marbles and with marbles for each condition. So there's technically four. Um, but we just wanted to see whether they would dig differently in the small cage, which they're used to, versus the large cage. And we didn't find any difference. Okay. And I think, so if we, I know that this is preclinical work, but I think it probably has some implications for, um, for future clinical work with humans and anxiety. And it brings up the question of how we measure things. And uh, that's why I think is so cool about your study is that um, you're, you're trying to figure out, are we really measuring anxiety correctly? Are we actually measuring anxiety or are we measuring digging like something else like that has nothing to do with anxiety? Do you think that this has clinical implications for future uh, work with humans? Yeah. So um, currently, so this digging study, um, we finished all of this data up a few months ago and are currently working on like the next portion of it. 
So what we're doing now is seeing if we can use digging behavior as a potential model for antidepressant testing. Um, because, you know, in humans, if they become very stressed or anxious or um, depressed, then they typically, we see a decrease in typical activities and digging is a, an exploratory typical activity for mice. So um, basically we wanna see if we give the mice the mouse a stressor. Um, we found that that actually really does decrease digging quite a significant amount. And um, now currently we are trying to reverse this back to its baseline state with antidepressants. What's a stressor for a mouse? Um, so there are, there's, there's either pharmacological or environmental. Uh, typically, we're, we're, well, right now we're working with a pharmacological stressor called yoambine. Um, it is basically found to induce like mild anxiety in humans, um, but there's also environmental. So this could be um, you put them in a very small space or there's some kind of restraint stress. Um, this will probably be done in the future. We're not really sure how yet, but yeah. Very interesting. Um, Thank you. What got you interested in working um, with mice or with this particular topic, you know, like with anxiety and depression and ways in which we can reduce those things with uh, drugs? Yeah. So um, I think a lot of this came forth when I took drugs and behavior with Dr. Hillhouse here, um, and I am working in his lab. So um, I, you know, I was first just interested in the lab and as a psychology major, I was, you know, interested in mental health. That's always been a big, important thing. And like, you know, I know a lot of people who struggle with it. I have personal struggles with it. And I know just how ineffective our current antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds can be. Um, so yeah, I think that's all got me interested in that. And then once we figured out like, Hey, like this marble varying thing is kind of, it seems kind of fake, like, you know, um, it was just, it's really cool to discover something that could like potentially be like a whole new model that a lot of scientists are using. No, I agree. That's really, really cool. And like this, again, it sort of falls into that category of students. I oh, wow, Georgina's microphone just fell apart in the, in the this is outstanding. Um, I like the, uh, I, this falls in the category, I think Georgina put it really well, you know, this, this, there's a much bigger question across psychology that we've been asking for 60 years, and that's how do we measure things? And, and I think this really nicely falls into that category of, of, of uh, research and is, are we measuring things the right way and, and potentially changing a, a research paradigm moving forward. So very cool. How, how are you feeling about MPA to ask the same question again? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, I haven't been to like a conference before besides like the small one that we had today. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> well, it, it's worth noting, you know, that I don't think MPA happened last year it was a virtual one last year. And then two years ago, I think it was just flat out canceled. But so, you know, this is for a lot of people, this will be their first time back in, in at least a long time or maybe their first time period. So okay. excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really great talking to you and, and great job with your work. Thank you. All right. Our last awesome uh, undergraduate is a student you may remember and recognize, uh, Cassie Englehart. 
uh, we'll be graduating in like three weeks uh, in May. She has also um, been given the distinction of being the commencement class speaker, which is so exciting. Uh, and you will remember her as our intern for like a year and a half, like or something like that, a long time. And we do miss you. We miss you a lot. Um, now I have to do everything with just Ryan and it's just not as much fun. <laughs> it's the worst. No, this thing is terrible. <laughs> we had such a great operation going and then you went and graduated. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, instinctually, you talked about show notes earlier and I was like, do I have to take notes right now? Like, am yeah. I, where's my job? <laughs> the, the funny thing is I already know that I'm not going to put anything in the show notes because I'm going to forget. But if you were still here, then it would happen. It would have been there. Yes. Yep, absolutely. So today, Kelsey is here not as our intern, um, but to talk about one of the two projects she is presenting at the Midwest Psychological Association next week. And I will give a shout out uh, to the other study that you're not talking about today, uh, which she accomplished with Professor Alan Huffcutt and the STARS research team uh, of, uh, like, I think five uh, co-team members. And that poster that you are first author on won the Regional Research Award at MPA. So what, what? Uh, congratulations on that work. But today you are here talking to us about your honors project and I am so excited uh, to hear about it. So um, I'm gonna let Ryan ask his first question. Well, I'm, I'm the sponsor of this research project, so I know the answers to all these. Should I still ask and pretend? Should I pr pretend I don't know anything? Kelsey? Yes, you should pretend. Okay. Well, I will start pretending right now. So Kelsey, tell me a little bit about your project. What did you do and uh, what did you find? Yeah, you know, I actually feel if you hadn't pretended, I would have been offended. So <laughs> right. I just really appreciate the energy you're giving me right now. Um, what is my project about? So yes, Ryan is my uh, faculty sponsor and arguably Georgina has been a part of this too. They're my go-to people, <laughs> some of my favorite humans. As Georgina is taking know. credit for all of my work right now. What <laughs> this I'm is so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's always interesting to hear what other students are doing in their studies. And all of the students that you guys just interviewed are fantastic, amazing. And I'm truly inspired and it's like, mind-blowing to me and it's it's funny to me because all of that sounds amazing but I don't think I would have done it <laughs> like I <Yeah>. would <laughs> and it's because and I, I'm not saying that as a diss I think they're amazing it's the fact that I have such different interests and mm -hmm. also logistical things right being being that commuter student someone who wasn't able to be in the lab which makes me so sad because that was always a goal so all of you humans I get to go in the labs you're so blessed um <laughs> to work with dr cowell and uh with dr Tillhouse. they're amazing um and sawa as well dr yes. sawa sinzaki um but my particular research i really wanted to know and something i've always been interested in is kind of human sexuality and so specifically <laughs> kind of started with a conversation between Ryan and I, and I'm like, how can I explore something, you know, potentially related to social media, um, related to that sexuality piece 
just something that's going to really pique my interest and keep me engaged because I wanted my honors project to mean something to me, right? Just like it meant all those projects to those students in some way. Um, and so finally, we happened upon, am I allowed to use explicit language? Yes. Okay, great. Love that. <laughs> so disclaimer. Um, no, but we were chatting and I said, okay, so why do people you know, why do people send unsolicited sexually explicit images? And when I say that, why do people send dick pics? Why do people send full frontal nudes? Why do people send, you know, images of pornography, basically, to somebody that they don't even know? It, it blows my mind. I, and viewers, you may or may not have experienced this based on my study. A lot of people have experienced this, whether you were the sender or the receiver um, of this content. I just wanted to know why. And a lot of the research that's been put out about this has been limited in some way because this is kind of a new area of study. Um, I mean, thinking about technology, we've really exploded over the past 20 years, right? And so even having a platform, a digital space where you can send images like this, like the equivalent of this in the past was like flashers on the street, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's a very different dynamic. So that's, I think, why a lot of this research is in its infancy, but it doesn't take away or diminish the fact that it needs to be studied because this is a social phenomenon that we're kind of just accepting that we're like, yeah, that's fine. You can send a, a picture of your, of your penis to me. That's fine. <laughs> you know, no big right. deal that I didn't ask for. Fine. Um, and it's not fine. <laughs> number one, <laughs> no. um, but in some situations, which I'll talk about it, I guess it is, but, um, it's, it's just an area that I thought was super interesting. And so doing kind of more of exploratory research on the topic, I thought would be really insightful and potentially help um, add to literature, the new literature on this topic. Absolutely. And I think what maybe one of the reasons why um, it hasn't been studied is that I think it, it, it takes some guts to, uh, you know, to approach a topic where you have to say the word penis, like, <laughs> and I think we, we kind of uh, approached that when Dr. Kate was on the podcast earlier this semester, a few episodes back, but I think, um, you know, even you having to ask, can I say explicit language shows you that this area as a legit area of research has not really um, become as legit as it should be. Have you encountered some of that in, um, in doing this research? I, I would say yes and no. I feel like I'm going to answer this question in kind of a roundabout way. So I apologize in advance. Um, this, so my study specifically was done on an online format, an anonymous survey, right? So it really gave people the ability to hide behind confidentiality, which is kind of interesting because you've, in some situations, people send these, these images and these messages in like an anonymous way. So it's kind of interesting that we're, we're recreating that space in a sense um, where people can actually tell their experiences and their stories. Um, but I will say that there's been a couple of times where I would talk about this with, uh, with family, with friends, mm -hmm. with whomever. And I've had friends that are like, thank you for looking at this. <laughs> like, thank you for actually taking the time because this has happened to me, you know, five times or whatever. And it was so uncomfortable or we ended up dating, you know, whatever, the, <laughs> whatever the result was, um, you know, but it's, it's opening a conversation about something that we really don't because of that taboo piece of it. So I guess in roundabout way, me answering that question is, you know, 
in the literature, they always talk about, or not always, but a lot of them do talk about like, this is a pressing issue. This is something that happens a lot. Um, some of them focus more on like the mental health piece, the legality piece, because technically, you know, especially minors and even beyond that, it can be sexual harassment, right? Because you didn't ask for this, which not okay. So they look at those pieces. Um, they look at even associations with like drug and alcohol use, which is kind of wild to me. Um, and also looking at it within the context of romantic relationships. Like if you send, like if you sext with one another and send sexy pictures and text messages, is that going to increase your relationship satisfaction? You know? So I think that this study particularly just really gave a space for people to kind of feel comfortable enough to share their experiences because they knew it was for the, they were number one anonymous and number two, it was just for the sake of exploring without judgment, you know, and I, I don't, I don't judge any of the people and I've gotten some interesting responses. Um, but yeah, so, and I, I apologize if I didn't get everything in your question. But. <laughs> well, it has been interesting though, because there's been a couple of places where, as we've been working on this, we've had to really think about what we wanted to present or include, you know, and I think about, I mean, just going back to the IRB and that being, and understandably, like, you know, that being extra steps here that we had to deal with. Um, but then also, um, not that the IRB was an extra step, but the way we talked about it with the IRB was, was we had to take particular safeguards, but also the, um, kind of as we're talking about presenting it at MPA, we've had to think about what we want to include on the poster and what we don't want to include on the poster and, and how we present this information in ways you don't have to if you're talking about marble burying or if you're talking about you know anxiety and, and empathy development and things like that. So it's definitely, you know, there are definitely some added elements with this kind of work. So what did you find, Kelsey? That's the million dollar question. I'm I'm waiting to know. <laughs> yeah. So again, this is very exploratory research, um, meaning that comparatively like to the other studies we just heard, you know, I don't, we didn't go through a bunch of statistical analyses um, because a lot of this was descriptive, you know, meaning for our general audience that a lot of it was just tell me about a time, tell me about the situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, tell me how it made you feel, right? So a lot of those kind of questions. Um, but Interestingly, I mean, I had 88 participants. I actually had a, a couple from out of the States, which was very cool. Way to go, social media. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, out of those 88, uh, it kind of almost an even split in terms of those who had sent the content and those who had said they received. Um, but I thought the most interesting finding was that um, a lot of the time, Sorry, now I'm scrolling down. I was so ready, you guys. And now I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the intended reaction of the unsolicited sexually explicit content, right? And the actual reaction coincided 65% of the time, according to the self-report of the senders of that content. So 65% of the time, the sender said, yeah, I meant to get the person sexually interested in me. And they replied back being sexually interested. Cool. So 65% of the time that coincided. Another example would be, I sent it to play a joke and they laughed at it. Great. Okay. You got your intended reaction, right? So then comparatively, I asked the receivers kind of the same question, like, what was your reaction? What do you think 
their intended reaction was based on the conversation surrounding this, you know, whether it was the text message or, or the image. And only 49% coincided in that regard. So, you know, you think, okay, 65%, 49%, that's actually a pretty big difference. Um, and furthermore, uh, and again, they had both positive and negative responses, right? Whether, whatever it was, but looking at this, it's just interesting because you think about, okay, so 65% of the time, these senders are getting their reaction they want, right? Maybe that's why this is continuing to happen, right? Like maybe that's why we keep getting the dick pics because right. they're working in some or, way or, because or another. They, or because they think they're working, right? You know, that it, <laughs> because it sounds like about 15% of the time they're not working, but they think they are. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. It's, it's interesting. And then that also brings me to if they feel that way and then 49% of the time, you know, uh, the respondents are technically having the, the uh, reaction they thought they were going to have. It just kind of makes me think about like, as a whole, as a social activity um, that we're engaging in, in some level, if this isn't like a pluralistic ignorance situation, that everyone just assumes that this is normal or everyone assumes that this is something that you just do, they're just okay with. And it's interesting because allowing this anonymous format, actually a lot of people were talking about, you know, I had positive responses. I had people who, who had received that were like, yeah, it was great. I loved it. <laughs> like I was so aroused after that. Sweet. Love that sex positivity, right? <laughs> then I had people that were like, that was disgusting. I hated every second. I, this is horrible, right? And again, that brings us back to IRB safeguards, why we have those in place, because it can be a traumatizing experience to think of these things again. Um, but it's just interesting to me. And, it, and it's exactly why we did this study is to kind of see why people did it and more so how they felt about it and seeing maybe if it really is like, are we just doing it because everyone else is doing it? Right. Right. But in some ways, like I think about, I wonder what the, um, reaction ratio is for someone who's at a bar who like uses a pickup line like does that have 65 percent coinciding like does the receiver of a of you know like oh you know like some silly you must be p greater than 0.05 because i failed to reject you kind of situation i'm so happy i got to say that yeah. on this podcast yeah, just because that worked on you one time <laughs> I'm still waiting for Ryan Gosling to appear and say that to me. Right. I mean, it, it does, it does feel like on some level, part of what we're dealing with is a relatively, um, I guess, a, a technology that's in its infancy and that continues to evolve very quickly and people not necessarily developing healthy norms and understanding the norms around its use or even agreeing on that. And because I think the pickup line comparison is apt in a, in a lot of ways that, that it sounds like that is the intent. It's the essentially the equivalent of a pickup line. And, and if you send out, it's like spamming, right? If you send out 200 and it works 1% of the time, then, you know, you've, you've gotten what you want. And, and it feels like that's part of what might be going on. Um, the same way, I mean, I, I hear people talk that way about pickup lines. Like if I, if I quote unquote hit on someone 20 times in a night and it works one time, then I'm a winner. And, and so it feels like that's some of what's happening here. Yeah, I agree. 
And it, it's fast. I mean, I think it's fascinating. Everyone who's listening can think it's totally boring. <laughs> but no, no I, just, I think, you know, I, I think it's important. And I think also like for me, uh, like as a, as a parent of a, of a young adult, I think it gives me an excuse to have a conversation about something that would be very challenging for me to have a conversation just like out of the blue. But when I, I feel like whenever someone does something scientific uh, about these taboo subjects, it gives us an opportunity to have a real conversation about, is this what we want as a society? Do we want to live in a world where this is the norm, or do we want to fight to change that? And I think we need to know first, is it a norm? Like, is it happening? And is it, you know, what's going on? And so a descriptive study like yours is really powerful to start those conversations. So kudos. I have two important questions, uh, both of them relatively quick. First, how are you feeling about MPA? I'm, I'm good. I'm feeling good. I'm actually kind of nervous. But okay. mostly because it's like in front of people. It is in front of people. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know, but I'm excited. I'm excited to go to a conference. We did the research in the rotunda for the stars nice. research. So I kind of have that under my belt and feeling more confident about things, but I actually am really excited. Um, I mean, for both projects, but especially for this one. Um, and just, I'm curious to see how people react to it, you know, right. and I'm a very open person. So I will talk about all the things. <laughs> especially with doing all my, all my training in victim advocacy, you know, talking about sex is very normal for me. Um, so I'm curious to see how that goes, but I'm excited. Good. And my second question is, have you written your graduation speech yet? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. It's been a process. I was, and I was hoping to make you anxious. I thought this answer was <laughs> going to be no. And that I was going to, I could be like, why not? She was going to go start burying marbles, but she's not. No. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Got to get some dirt. Um, so, no, yes, we've, I've written it. Georgina helped me immensely, um, as did Dr. Thomas Campbell, in case he listens to this. He's fantastic. Um, so it's a, yeah. like theatrical because he's a theater professor. So are you acting something out during the, uh, are you doing a one person show? you know what, this would have been the perfect opportunity and now I'm regretting it. <laughs> There's still time. There's yeah. still time, Kelsey. You know, I literally, I tried, I tried to make, I tried to be funny and I'm not really a funny person. So I think that I just have to stick with my like comfort zone, you know? Oh. Um, I'm already going to be like super red on stage. I already anticipate it's going to happen. <laughs> so like, that'll be enough humor for everyone okay there you go there you go and I'm just gonna cry through the whole thing so let me just uh, like warn you because I cried reading the draft of the draft of the the, the scrap draft I was like oh no. it's going to be a, a fantastic day so um, congratulations Kelsey on all that you have accomplished and it has been Ryan and my pleasure um, to have you on our podcast like uh, as a swan song of, of sorts but um, it has been great so congratulations for all the great things that you've done so yay excellent <laughs> you can learn more about actually so Kelsey's gonna do uh, a couple of TikToks for uh, using 
anger professor. So she'll be on my TikTok sharing some results from this study in the next couple of weeks. I know you sent me drafts of those that I haven't looked at, but I will soon. Um, and so you can follow me at anger professor to learn more about Kelsey's project. Uh, on all, you can follow me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Georgina, you are? I, I was actually going to give a shout out to the at UWGB psych, yes. uh, because that is where um, I, I will be posting from live from MPA. So you'll get to uh, catch all of the students that were on the podcast today and more uh, next week at MPA. So maybe following at UWGB psych is the place to be next week. Perfect. And just generally always fun to be following at UWGB Psych. Excellent. And you can, of course, follow us at Psych and Stuff, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Good place to ask questions, request topics for episodes, contribute uh, questions, things like that. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick and our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlease. Special thanks to all our guests today, Haley, Karsten, Caitlin, and Kelsey. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungis. Keep being amazing. Amazing.